This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. On this episode, The Wigs discuss the recent High Court decision, Commonwealth vs. AJL20, a narrow win for the Commonwealth against a refugee whose visa was cancelled on character grounds and a case which has potentially big ramifications for the protection of liberty in this country. Secondly, a world first in enforcement against big tech, The Wigs delve into the federal court decision, ACCC vs. Google, in which the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission succeeded in showing that Google engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct and made false or misleading leading representations to consumers about the personal location data the company collects, keeps and uses on their devices. Finally, what has been described as the most serious miscarriage of justice in recent English history, a scandal which has finally been brought into the light after a long tale of destruction. For 20 years, the post office hijacked the English criminal justice system and used it to ruin the lives and livelihoods of hundreds of innocent people. Now, without further ado, here is the show. It is lovely to be back in the virtual studio once more with the three smartest people I've ever met. Uh, and Stephen Lawrence, can we welcome everyone to the wings? <laughs> his his worship, Stephen Lawrence, the mayor of Dubbo himself. How are you going, sir? Mate, I'm recovering from that cheap shot, but I'm in <laughs> New South Wales. I'm not in lockdown, so I'm feeling pretty good. Oh, that makes one of us, sir. Very lucky for you, uh, Manuel Kokosharian. Lovely to see you again. Always good to see you, Jim. Here, here, sir. Here, here. And Felicity Graham, the great Felicity Graham. How are you doing up north? I'm going very well. I've just entered a new lockdown stage, but I'm going very well. Yeah. There was a double rainbow over Lennox Head this afternoon. Oh, well, that's always a good sign. Mm. It has to be a good omen. It's a good omen for a good show. We've got three fantastic topics, three fantastic devotees to the law to discuss them all. We're starting off with his worship, Mr. Stephen Lawrence. What are we talking about first on the Wigs? Take it away. So I'm talking about a new decision of the High Court of Australia in AJL 20 and Commonwealth of Australia. Came down on the 23rd of June this year. Um, And listeners will remember the name because I think it was in Series 1 we talked about... Series 2? Series 2. Series 2. Episode 8, if I'm not mistaken. Well done, Jim. You're on top of it. Thank you. I've got a good researcher. We talked about the decision of the Federal Court of Justice Bromberg that has now been overturned in this new High Court decision. And I'll just go back a little bit through the history of the proceedings and what occurred in the Federal Court and what it's all about before uh, perhaps we go on to discuss the High Court judgments Um, There's a number of judgments in the High Court decision. It was a narrow decision, 4-3, in favour of overturning Justice Bromberg's decision. So the case is about um, a Syrian man who is part of a growing cohort, it would seem, of people in Australia who um, are refugees in the sense of having a well-established fear of persecution. They return to their home country but they are also people that the Australian government has refused to allow to have a visa to live here. And generally, in terms of this cohort that I'm talking about, they're people that have failed the character test. So generally people that have had permanent visas um, and had them cancelled because of criminal offending. 
though you can certainly fit into this cohort without having sort of proved criminal offending by way of sentences and so forth. Um, we talked in an earlier episode than the first one touching on AJL20 about the explosion in deportation since 2014 um, and the fact that a lot of proven refugees have been caught up in this frenzy of cancellation. Um, so this issue, I think, of proven refugees falling foul of the character test and then facing either a reformant to harm and persecution or indefinite detention, I think it's one of the big, most important issues in our legal system at the moment and it's generating a huge amount of case law in the federal uh, jurisdictions and really raises these important, important human rights questions around refugee protection, uh, liberty, uh, access to justice, um, all these things. So just turning, just talking a little bit about uh, the facts of the case in terms of who is AJL20, we don't have a lot of information in either the federal court or the more recent high court decision about him, but he's a citizen of Syria, um, so not a stateless person. Uh, in about 1996, his mum immigrated to Australia and then he subsequently as a child in May of 2005 uh, immigrated to Australia. In 2014, he lost his visa on character grounds under Section 5012, one of the many powers created by Section 501 to cancel visas. He therefore became an unlawful non-citizen uh, within the meaning of the Act. On the 8th of October 2014, he was detained by the Commonwealth and stayed in detention until the decision of Justice Bromberg, which, as I've said, has now been overturned by the High Court. Um, but the High Court judgment doesn't make clear what is his current status, what's happened to him. Um, it's quite unclear. So the issue at play in both the federal court and the high court decision was basically the interpretation of a number of interlocking provisions of the Migration Act, interpreted in the context of some pretty important constitutional principles around when it offends implications in the constitution to detain certain people for certain purposes. And there's many prohibitions in terms of detention implied in the constitution. Um, uh, but one of the permissible circumstances in which the executive can detain, uh, obviously courts can detain, but uh, one of the circumstances where the executive can detain is for the purpose of processing visa applications and for the purpose of removing from Australia. So there's a and that's all in relation to what's called unlawful non-citizens, right? So that's a category of people where they're not a citizen and they don't otherwise have a visa yeah, to correct. be able to live in Australia. Yeah, that's right. So once you become an unlawful non-citizen, you the first provision, in a sense, that applies is Section 189. That requires the immediate detention of unlawful non-citizens. Section 196, and this was a key thing at issue in the Federal Court and the High Court in AJL 20, speaks to the duration of detention. And it says, uh, in a relevant sense for this discussion, an unlawful non-citizen detained under Section 189, so that is person who's locked up under that mandatory provision 
that applies to all unlawful non-citizens must be kept in immigration detention until A, he or she is removed from Australia under sections 198 or 199. And then there's a number of other provisions, but that's the key one for the purpose of this discussion. And then 198 um, imposes on that effectively a condition that the person must be removed from Australia as soon as reasonably practicable. So sort of three things. You have to be locked up if you're an unlawful non-citizen. You've got to be held in detention uh, until you're removed and you've got to be removed as soon as reasonably practicable. So what happened in AJL 20 um, in terms of the, the underlying facts of the matter was, as I said, he was detained in 2014, but he was not removed. And what was put in evidence in front of Justice Bromberg was a series of documents and oral evidence from from relevant officials, which showed essentially that an executive decision had been made not to remove him and that that decision had been made on the basis that Australia owed him international protection obligations, i.e. if he was sent back to Syria, he faced a real risk of persecution um, in the sense of the Refugees uh, Convention or relevant harm in the sense of complementary protection, which is that aspect of our international obligations arising from other international instruments like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And so you have this situation where uh, he's detained, uh, he hasn't been removed, but he hasn't, they haven't sought to remove him as soon as reasonably practicable. And what Justice Bromberg essentially found was that the failure to comply with the statutory limitation on the detention meant that his detention was unlawful, uh, habeas corpus therefore issued, um, and he was entitled to be released from custody. Now, uh, as I sort of said at the beginning, in one sense, that's just an exercise in statutory interpretation, but in another sense, it's the sort of implementation and interpretation of statute in the context of an important constitutional principle, which is that that was stated in a case known as LIM and Minister for Immigration 1992 176 CLR 1, which, which is the sort of leading High Court authority on when is it uh, constitutionally permissible to detain non-citizens and what are the limits um, on that power. And that speaks to this requirement to remove as soon as practicable um, and that the purpose of the detention is to remove from Australia or to process a visa application and there's no unlimited indefinite detention uh, that is permitted um, under the Constitution because that would be to stray into impermissible detention in terms of the implications from Chapter 3. So that's what Justice Bromberg says, that uh, the detention was unlawful because they didn't seek to remove him as soon as practicable. Rather, they sought to detain him virtually indefinitely, I suppose, until things might have improved in Syria. So uh, the Commonwealth wasn't happy about losing that case. And you can see why it was important to the Commonwealth, because they're detaining this growing cohort of people. And then all of a sudden, you've got a federal court judge saying, well, you have to choose uh, between your international protection obligations, which you seek to comply with by not removing, and your domestic Australian obligations that say that it's not permissible to detain 
for the purpose of complying with your international obligations because that leads to this situation of indefinite executive detention not authorised by the Act um, or the Constitution, perhaps. Um, So that went on appeal to the High Court of Australia. As I said, it was a narrow decision for three in favour of overturning Justice Bromberg's decision. Uh, The majority was uh, Chief Justice Kiefel, Justices Gagler, Keane and Stewart, and quite a lengthy judgment and quite complex, but they say in one part, the conclusion that officers of the executive have not discharged their statutory duty to remove the respondent from Australia as soon as reasonably practicable affords a basis for orders requiring that they do their duty. Orders to that effect are appropriate to enforce the scheme of the Act. In contrast, to order that the respondent be released into the Australian community because officers of the executive have not performed their statutory duty to remove him from Australia is to subvert that scheme. It is evident that the executive found the prospect of the removal of the respondent to Syria in breach of Australia's non-reformant obligations unpalatable. In that regard, it is equally evident that if the minister wished to avoid the realisation of that unpalatable prospect, a visa might be granted to the respondent, precisely as the explanatory memorandum to the bill that introduced 197C contemplated. So what they're basically saying there is um, they were not willing to reason that the detention uh, had become in any actionable legal sense unlawful simply because of a failure to comply with the requirement to remove as soon as reasonably practicable. Uh, If there was some aspect of unlawfulness to it, it wouldn't ground a writ of habeas corpus or damages. It would only ground uh, perhaps an order in the nature of mandamus to compel removal, which obviously from the point of view of AJL 20 isn't of much assistance because he faces death if he's removed. He's unlikely to seek that order in the nature of mandamus uh, to be removed to Syria to die. Stephen, do they, um, do, do they actually engage in why the existence of mandamus means or that that mandamus might run means that habeas doesn't run? Do they actually get into that in the majority? They, they on a, as a question of statutory interpretation, just say that's the obvious intent of the scheme because... Yeah. You have the fact of detention, then you have clearly stated, I think it's in 196, it only ends in certain circumstances. And they just say it doesn't lose its quality of lawfulness. And they cite a bit of authority, a full court decision, a couple of others. But, you know, the minority quote a whole lot of quite powerful, you know, authority to the proposition that, you know, detention does lose its inherent and complete quality of lawfulness when it ceases to be for the purpose that it's authorised for. Mm. Um, hey, what, what's, can we explain what mandamus is? I've forgotten. Is it, that's when the government's compelled to act? Is yeah, that right? so it's an order compelling the executive to do a particular thing. Right, right, right. Okay. In order to comply with law. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, and in this context, it would be an order compelling the government, the executive government, to, to deport him. a person. Yeah, right. To comply mm. with the obligation in the Act to remove them from Australia. That's yeah. right, yeah. And assuming that the evidence was that it is reasonably practicable to remove them from Australia, 
then that obligation would apply instantaneously. And, yeah. So that's the majority. Um, there's a couple of decisions um, in the minority and pretty heated dissents, I suppose you could say. Strident. Strident. So one of the decisions is written by Justices Gordon and Gleeson. Um, at 99, they say the Commonwealth submissions that the Commonwealth submission that its construction would not result in quote unbounded, unconstrained, or discretionary executive detention end quote because failure to comply with the duty to remove an unlawful non-citizen as soon as reasonably practicable may attract mandamus is glib and unhelpful. The availability of mandamus depends on there being a public duty unperformed, not a private duty breach of which sounds in damages. The reference to mandamus is glib because there will be some, if not many cases, where an unlawful non-citizen in immigration detention will have no means of obtaining information necessary to mount a case for, for mandamus. The unlawful prolongation of detention that is brought about by the executive's failure to remove as soon as reasonably practicable will go unremedied. The person in detention has no claim for damages. The Bivens action for damages is not recognised in Australia. And, you know, there's obviously much more in there, but they draw upon LIM, the constitutional limitations um, on detention, the statutory scheme, these provisions as read together to say that the majority's reasoning effectively is nonsense and it's consistent with long-standing authority to say that when you fail to comply with an essential condition on, deten on, uh, on detention, that it becomes unlawful um, and that mandamus must flow. Um, Can I just underscore... So that's habeas, do you mean? So, yeah, sorry, habeas, yeah. Can I just underscore paragraph 99's description of the Commonwealth's argument about mandamus as glib and unhelpful? Um, that's two justices saying of the majority's reasoning that they adopted the glib and unhelpful. It's quite a it's quite a statement to be made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this whole issue of asylum seekers um, or refugees detained because of character failures um, has obviously led to these a whole range of decisions, including this one. And after AJL 20, actually might have been before AJL, yeah, it was before it came down, but the provisions didn't apply in AJL 20, the Commonwealth Parliament has legislated to amend the Migration Act to create a scheme to try to deal with this stuff. Um, and what it basically says is that if a person is owed international non-refoulement obligations, they can't be removed from Australia unless they consent and that they must be detained. Um, so they've tried to sort of respond to this quandary by saying, well, we now are choosing to have a scheme where you will stay in detention indefinitely. We won't force you to be removed. So they're trying to get around this AJL 20 sort of argument um, and you can stay in detention forever unless you choose to go home. Hmm. And, you know, that's... You know, that is yet to be tested and those provisions weren't at play in this case. But there seems to me to be a real issue about whether those new provisions, and I think it's 197C, to the extent that they purport to authorise detention for the purpose 
of complying with international non-refoulement obligations, whether that is consistent with the LIM principle in the sense that is that detention for the purpose of removal or is that detention for some other purpose? It's clearly not detention for the purpose of processing a visa application. Um, So there's a lot to go, I think, in this particular area of litigation and those provisions, I suspect, will inevitably be challenged. I thought the other part of Justices Gordon and Gleeson's decision that was really persuasive was the analysis about the differences between mandamus and habeas corpus in terms of them being two remedies that have not only different purposes but also engage differences in the onus of proof. So in a habeas, which is the Latin term for literally bring the body um, to the court that's detained, bring the body, and it's on the executive to justify the detention. In a mandamus, it's going to be on the applicant, the person being detained, to establish the evidentiary basis for why they say then the government should be compelled to do what they do. Mm. And I thought there's a passage from paragraph 94 in that joint dissenting judgment that talks about habeas not only being an essential form of relief um, for unlawful executive detention, um, but then goes on to give various long-standing authorities in the way that that remedy has been described as the great and efficacious writ in all manner of illegal confinement, the high prerogative writ, a famous bulwark of our liberties, the most significant means of protecting individual liberty. And then the justices go on saying it's a remedy the more necessary because the oppression does not always give rise, sorry, does not always arise from the ill nature, but sometimes from the mere inattention of government. And I think it was Edelman as well, Justice Edelman, that talks about, or perhaps Justices Gordon and Gleeson too, about what about a scenario where the government just forgets or loses the file and it was reasonably practicable to deport them on day 100 but they've languished in custody for another 100 days just because some Commonwealth official lost the file. Is that really going to be held to be a continuing lawful detention? Well, under the majority's ruling, it would. Yeah. Um, Or if they decide, one of the other examples given, I can't remember by which dissenting judge, was something like if they decide we're going to send you back but we're going to make you do two years as punishment... Mm. then that may well then again you wouldn't have a habeas wouldn't run i mean the thing that the thing that blows my mind is that ultimately they were not acting within the letter of the legislation and the majority kind of deals with that in a way that frankly confuses me and i, I i'm not sure that it makes much sense to me anyway but they were acting at least against the the, the need to send him back as reasonable as as soon as reasonably practicable and they just chose one remedy mandamus over the other remedy habeas 
Whereas where habeas would have and seen And what about him. false imprisonment damages? Yeah, exactly, right? All those things. And Edelman, I think, goes, get, really puts the boot in in relation to those sorts of things and says, you know, they, all those other things would run. And I hope wherever mm. – well, anyway. So I, I just – can I commend this judgment, though? If you're going to read one high court judgment this year, this is the one to read because it's a sort of masterclass from the majority on how to construct an argument that – somehow dodges the underlying fact, and I say that with unfeigned respect, dodges the underlying facts and kind of constructs this, well, the law's constitutional um, and so anything done under that act must be constitutional um, and we're not going to go back and look at how it's all working together to see whether or not it's constitutional. And the dissents are really old-fashioned common-law judges having a go at, you know, what's going on and asserting that the power of that ancient writ and habeas, of course, being the writ that ended slavery in the UK, you know, and... Mm. One thing that came to my my mind... Sorry, Steve. One thing that came to my mind was this distinction between the power to detain initially and then the power to continue to detain over time. Justices Gordon and Gleeson talk about the power to detain having temporal bookends, a start and an end point, and the detention beyond the terminating bookend being unlawful. Mm. And Edelman also talks about distinguishing between duration and original detention and that the Commonwealth's argument really elided those two um, concepts. It really brought to mind all of those provisions that have been introduced into arrest laws that permit detention for a reasonable period for the purpose of investigation after an original lawful arrest on suspicion of Mm. an offence being committed and for the purpose then of bringing that person before a court. Because that detention would be be unlawful, right? Because that detention would be normally considered to be unlawful if that that requirement of of reasonable time is exceeded. But are you saying that this decision might change that? Well, the majority doesn't seem to really grapple with the consequence in terms of duration because Mm. they effectively read out the phrase as soon as reasonably practicable and don't require... um, any any consideration really of duration the only only precondition to lawful detention that they really demand is that a commonwealth official believes or reasonably suspects or whatever the state of mind is knows that the person is an unlawful Mm. non-citizen and they're still in australia so they haven't been removed therefore they have to be detained and this requirement to remove as soon as reasonably practicable, I don't know if they're saying that it's aspirational, but they're sort of 
saying that it doesn't that that non-compliance doesn't affect the essential character of it this will have all sorts of consequences in other areas of the law i suspect and it kind of makes you wonder what are they trying to achieve here like why are they attracted to this idea that in this particular policy area you can have a law that exists for the constitutional purpose of removal but we're going to interpret it in a way to give it unfettered and unlimited uh, operation depending upon essentially the whim of the executive. Um, mm. I mean, I it think just leads Yeah, it leads you to the conclusion that they're trying to, on a policy level, whether consciously or not, to accommodate the Commonwealth's policy concerns around this cohort of people. Which, mm, but Justice know, Edelman, I think, comes back with a pretty forceful retort to that at 108, where his honour says, it would be very strange if the Migration Act were an island of freedom from established legal concepts, permitting the executive to act for any purpose in the exercise of its powers or the performance of its duties, no matter how far that purpose departs from the express or implied terms of statutory authority. Mm. But that seems to be really what's happening here or else a very considerable shift in principle when it comes to protecting liberty. I think that it's the High Court has been has been for a long time now really quite reluctant to get in the way of executive detention. And mm. I think this judge I, I I don't I, I don't think it's not to do with immigration policy per se. I think it's more to do with that position that the High Court has been taking again and again in the high-risk offenders world, in other places we've seen, limb has really been chipped away at over time in a myriad of cases. And the High Court just is fine with executive detention just so long as it's not a criminal trial. It was quite amusing to me how, um, how self-assured and strident the tone of all the judgments was, including the majority. Like... This is obviously really contestable and really controversial and you've got big brains on both sides. But you read the majority decision, you're almost left thinking that you'd have to be an idiot to disagree with them. Like they state it as if it's the most natural and obvious conclusion in the world. Yeah. I just found that quite amusing. I was, I was for a moment persuaded by the idea that well, Mandamus runs, so he had a remedy, and, and so that's fine. Until I read the opening lines of the dissent, and it's like, hang on a second, so what if he's got one remedy? Why shouldn't he have the other one? You know, why, should, why shouldn't he be free? Yeah. And, you know. Let's go back to basics. Yeah. Liberty's the most important right in our system, supposedly. Yeah. I wonder whether... Hundreds of years. One of the... <clears throat> factors operating on the minds was that and that minority acknowledged this as well that upon being released and upon being out in the community there was then again an immediate obligation upon a commonwealth official to detain him again because he's an unlawful non-citizen and if he doesn't have a visa, then he has to be detained again. And so there's this kind of circular Yeah, but Bromberg dealt that by saying that that obligation wouldn't exist because in the circumstances of AJL 20, that detention wouldn't be for a purpose recognised by the Act. 
Yeah. If I, it was only going to be then for the purpose of... Of keeping um, him in custody keeping and not him sending him here. to Syria. Yeah. Sure. It has to be right. Yeah, that's true. And Edelman dealt with it on the basis that, well, that scenario is what Section 197C was introduced to try to remedy and as explained by Parliament on the introduction of that amendment, which which says that basically non-Rule Form 1 obligations are irrelevant to the questions of having to detain and deport and so on, but that that then engages the Minister's power in Section 195 Capital A of the Migration Act, which is to grant a bridging visa of a class that is bridging removal pending. Mm, In other words, you're still going to be deported. That's what the ultimate intention is at at such time as that can be done consistent with Australia's international obligations. So we'll be releasing in a couple of weeks after this episode drops an interview with AJL20's uh, lawyer, Alison Batterson, who runs a great organisation called Human Rights for All. And I sat down with her for about an hour or so and we talked about uh, this case in more detail. So stand by, listeners, for that. Welcome back. Uh, That was a nice little break, that one. I like that musical interlude. It was lovely. Uh, We're moving on to Felicity Graham's topic now. Uh, Not Bing, Google, correct? Google. Google. Let's go. Take it away. What's Google? What's going on in the world of Google? The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, hereafter the ACCC, brought proceedings in the Federal Court of Australia a couple of years ago against Google LLC, otherwise known as the multinational company with headquarters in California, the United States, Google. Is this Alphabet now, pre-Alphabet days, or are they, are they known as Alphabet? That's their mother company? Oh, that's I think that's probably right. Probably not important. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, no, that's not so important. Um, and they also brought proceedings against Google Australia Pity Limited, which is the Australian subsidiary of Google LLC. And they brought those proceedings alleging that the companies had engaged in misleading conduct and made false or misleading representations to consumers about personal location data that Google collects, keeps, and then uses for purposes such as crafting advertising content that comes up and things like that. So the ACCC in their claim alleged that from at least about January of 2017, Google breached the Australian consumer law when it made on-screen representations, that is it comes up on your mobile phone, um, on Android mobile phones and tablets uh, that misled consumers about when location data would be collected or used according to particular Google account settings that were enabled or disabled on the devices. And particularly this kind of concerned three main scenarios. The first scenario was during the setup of an Android device. So representations were made to consumers setting up a Google account on their Android mobile phone or tablet 
about this location data issue. And then the other two scenarios where were where users wanted to turn off the feature location history and where users were considering whether to turn off the function web and act sorry web and app activity on their mobile phones and tablets and they had various consequences for then when personal location data was collected or used by by Google so Justice Thorley of the Federal Court heard the case at the end of last year and ruled on the questions of whether the ACCC has established breaches of the Australian consumer law earlier this year and the case uh, is still on foot. So basically Justice Thorley found that the ACCC did establish breaches of the Australian consumer law, namely that when consumers created a new Google account during the initial setup process, Google misrepresented that the location history setting was the only Google account setting that affected whether Google collected, kept or used personally identifiable data about their location, whereas in fact the web and app activity setting also enabled Google to collect, store and use personally identifiable location data when it was turned on and that setting was turned on by default. The court also found that when consumers later accessed the location history setting and turned it off, they were also misled because Google did not tell them that by leaving on the web and app activity setting, Google would still be collecting, storing and using their personally identifiable location data. And then the court also made a finding that Google's conduct was liable to mislead the public. So I wonder if in the punishment phase of this, there'll be evidence about what percentage of consumers engage with all of this, like what percentage of people turn it on or off or try to turn it on or off, because that would presumably be relevant to how serious the breach is, right? Like how many people were actually misled in the sense of not doing a certain thing or doing a certain thing that led to their data being mind when they didn't wish for it to be. Mm. Yeah, so far the what I can glean from the federal court orders on their website about what's happening next is that there's a process of discovery happening where the ACCC is seeking to discover from Google certain documents showing their turnover during relevant periods, their annual turnover, the amount of turnover attributable to advertising, Mm. the amount of turnover by Google Australia attributable to the sale of Pixel devices, various financial statements. That all seems to me likely to be relevant to that principle of capacity to pay, presumably. But also maybe how much they got from it, right? And maybe degree Mm. of profits that are connected to the breaches. Yeah. Because I never... So, and then it's listed for a hearing on penalty in September. Mm, Interesting. Mm. So do you guys engage with those sort of functions and opt out of that sort of data mining stuff? I don't know. 
I do. Do you? Yeah, okay. I've got pretty... Yeah. Yeah, I, I lock down things as much as I can, you know. But then, you know, I use Facebook and Twitter, so, you know. I once received an email that said, oh, here's where you've been the last couple of weeks or a couple of months. And I clicked it and it was feeding um, the map of my area and just blue lines of where I'd crisscrossed. And where, and then you click on a line, it said, oh, yeah, which day? You could go back in time and it would tell me exactly the route I would take. And, oh, no, um, that was me that sent you that, Jim. Yeah, there we go. But it was crazy <laughs> because I remember when I was, uh, I went, okay, well, let's see how far this thing goes back. And I took it back to 2015 because I went to India for uh, a week for work-related stuff. And it was kind of this smash-grab trip where it's like, hey, you're going to India next week, get your shit together and go. So I didn't know where I was in India. And so I was able to retrace my steps. So from that point of view, it was quite interesting. But we was going back at least five years. So wow. they've been tracking mm. me for five years. You know, it's an interesting question to ask though, Steve, because one of Google's arguments was surrounding how you frame or how you characterize the hypothetical user mm, yeah, and what their qualities are and then how that feeds into whether or not the representations or conduct, um, as the case may be, were actually misleading or likely mm. to mislead or deceive, etc. Because it wasn't so literally Google, misleading, was it, in the sense that well, if you read it as a contract? categories. There were different categories. So there were three breaches found, sections, Section 18 of the ACL or Australian Consumer Law, where it, which is where there's conduct that is misleading or deceptive or is likely to mislead or deceive. And the second breach was of Section 291G of the Australian Consumer Law, and that's where Google in trade or commerce, which wasn't in dispute, in connection with the supply or promotion of goods or services, made a representation that the goods or services have performance characteristics, uses or benefits, which was false or misleading. And Google succeeded in arguing that for that breach, the ACCC had to prove to the requisite standard that Google had made representations that were actually false or misleading. And then the third breach was of Section 34, which is that in trade or commerce, Google engaged in conduct that was liable to mislead the public and the conduct was liable to mislead as to the nature characteristics or suitability for purpose of the services. So there were slightly different tests at play depending on which breach was concerned Google said that the law required the identification of a single hypothetical person within the relevant class of users to test by reference to that hypothetical person whether the members of the class would have been misled by the conduct and the question is whether that hypothetical person would have been misled that hypothetical person being capable of only one response and then they tried to say, well, look, that one hypothetical response person faced with this piece of information on the screen and then this information and then this option to Mm. look at more information or not and so on would have had a certain response so as not to be misled. And were they seeking to impute to that single hypothetical person presumably pretty keen 
sort of attention to detail and understanding in a literal sense of what's being said. Smells like a hoodwink. Yeah, and what the judge didn't accept it. The judge said... People don't um, even look at these things, let alone pay close attention to them. Totally is. Yeah, so one of the things the judge said in response to that was one difficulty with the submissions made by Google is that reasonable members of the class would have behaved in various ways. Mm. Google's submissions presume only one reaction or response. Some of the members of the class would have acted in the way Google submitted in its various different iterations, but others would not have. And I'm satisfied. I'm not satisfied that all reasonable members of the class would have behaved in the way that Google Google submitted. Our discussion and, makes that point, know, doesn't it? Like we've got some of them, people here in terms of qualities of how we look at these things. Like you look at them, flick. It seems an opt in, opt out. Seems like manner you sort of do, and I'm incapable of it. Well, I was unaware. <laughs> Didn't even know after the fact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's that's reflected in the analysis by the judge mm-hmm. that there is this array of reasonable responses by consumers, and and a real I think grappling with the reality, which is that a lot of people faced with terms and conditions or privacy statements or various different things click through without really paying much heed to them. And the old that- contra preferentem clauses. Yes. Someone's just studied contract law? No, that was. I'm, I'm failing the topic that we're actually discussing right now, so this is actually beneficial for me. So, keep, Isn't there something going, in contract law, Jim? I remember you talking about this, about a strict approach to interpreting contract terms on these sort of standard issue. Yeah, the, you, you weigh them, you, you weigh them yeah, in favour of those like who don't rely on it. Well, no, you, well this well, is I contra think- preferentem, yeah. I don't think this is. I think this is about consumer law, okay, which you know, is right, about right. protections yeah. for consumers, not through the prism of it being a contract between a sort yeah, of yeah, individual yeah, no, sure. and a company. Yeah, yeah but terms um, and conditions, though, those are yeah, those are um, those are contra preferentum contracts. But this is a breach of ACL, though. Yeah, mm, that's right. It's interesting just how far they go, or the court went, or the argument went in sort of analysing and describing the reasonable person, the hypothetical reasonable user and so on, and thinking about, say, in the criminal law or in other areas, how limited we are in the analysis of what makes a reasonable person and what that mm. person is like. like here, and, mm. and I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just, it's just a fascinating thing to think about. They drilled right down and actually looked... Hypothesized really about how people would act in the face of certain, and there's screenshots in there. You know, you see the screenshot. What's the reaction to? How do you take these things together? I don't know any. Certainly not in criminal law. We're not going that far when we're looking at reasonable people and how they react. Perhaps we should be, um, at least on the defence side. But on the other hand, it does feel a little bit like a hoodwink to me as well. Like. You know, we're drilling down, we're drilling down, we're drilling down. On some level, if you were, say, to run a matter like this in front of a jury, a jury's going to go, yep, this is confusing as all hell, it's misleading, we don't need to go any further than that. Um, and, you know, this is one of my fav- this is one of my least favourite things about federal court judgments is they're all like books and this is another book that's, you know, millions <laughs> of paragraphs long and impenetrable. Um, I thought it was quite quite well set up. I mean, I do think that when you start a judgment and the first few pages is just the contents, 
yeah. page, <laughs> you're in for a long ride. Yeah, look, it, but that can also be useful. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying it was poorly written. Map. I'm just saying it was long. It was it's too long. Yeah, you sure, know? sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the ACCC chair, Rod Sims, is pretty pleased with the decision. He said this is an important victory for consumers, especially anyone concerned about their privacy online, as the court's decision sends a strong message to Google and others that big business, but big businesses must not mislead their customers. Companies that collect information must explain their settings clearly and transparently so consumers are not misled. Consumers should not be kept in the dark when it comes to the collection of their personal location data. And they also called it a world-first enforcement action, which, uh, yeah, seems seems like that might be the case. Um, so good on the ACCC yeah, for, for bringing the good proceedings. Mm. It's a good way. Hopefully it withstands and the various appeals that it will have to go through, no doubt. Yeah, so then there's the possibility of pecuniary penalties. The ACCC is also seeking publication orders, being an order that Google publish a notice to Australian consumers to explain their location data settings in the future and to ensure that consumers can make informed choices about whether certain Google settings that collect personal location data should be enabled or not. And, yeah, those, those remedies being sought. Uh, they're still outstanding. What about deleting the data? Is that being canvassed? Hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. wonder if that's within sure. the scope of the penalty orders. Or the compliance orders. There might be some sort of yeah. equitable thing there, though. Might like there? destruction of the drugs, mm. destruction of the location data. Yeah. I think, Stephen, we were talking before we got online about the prospect of there being a... Um, class action arising out of this to get some damages or... Um, mm. uh, Might be hard to show that. damages though, right? Like, yeah. Like what's well, the damage? Right. Your data's been used. They've got a benefit from it. So there might be some equitable thing, but what's the damage? I ended up buying a, you know, gadget that I didn't really need because they marketed to me on the basis of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Good bump, Flicky. He's, yep. Equitable. What are you going to do, Steve? What's the equitable remedy there? I think I've plumbed the depths of my knowledge about equity. Latches. Equity. Latches. Oh, well, no, that's if it's too <laughs> no, long. I know, right? yeah. Isn't that a dessert? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a fruit, and that's isn't light it? Cheese. Light cheese. Oh, that's <laughs> a light cheese, sorry. Because, <laughs> um, like, the data, oh, the data's all, that's all, that's all money. That's money in Google's bank, right? Yeah. They... So, deleting it, you're deleting it after a certain period of time, that's, that's, mm. that's cutting into their revenue that they can sit on. There should be a price for every bit of mine that you take with the, against the rules, I get a dollar. Dollar a bit. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the wigs. Uh, no one knows where I am right now, except for Google. Uh, that was a great talk, Flicky. Thank you very much. Moving along to Emmanuel Kirkusharian, the man, the myth, himself. Take it away, sir. Bless you, Jim. 
so, so I think the best introduction to this is a transcript of a speech given by Paul Marshall of Cornerstone Chambers in the UK. And, and this quote out of that speech is probably a good intro into this story. And Mr. Marshall says, I'm, I'm talking to you today about the most serious series of miscarriages of justice in recent English history. To put it in tabloid terms, for 20 years, the post office hijacked the English criminal justice system and used it essentially as part of the post office for its own purposes. In the process, it ruined the lives and li livelihoods of hundreds of innocent people. And what I will try and show, if you can follow my thread, is how ethical failures in business, when it feeds into legal failures by lawyers and judges, becomes incredibly damaging. So what he's talking about, in short, is a series of prosecutions that happened over a number of years, over 20 years, where um, effectively a, a, a new computer system was put in into the post offices. Um, if that was an accounting system, and it had a bug in it for, for, in shorthand, it had a bug in it. And the effect of that bug was every now and again, uh, it would make it seem like you earned more money that day than you did. If that happened, uh, you were, if you, so if you're at post office somewhere in London or somewhere outside of London, it happens in your post offices, the bug occurs, they think you've stolen the money. They, so it's like a payroll thing, it's a, payroll. Well, I, I'm not sure whether it's payroll or sort of income kind of thing, right? So, But these are employees of the post office? I think it was more at a point of transaction. Yeah. Let's say someone comes into the post office oh, to sorry. post some mail. They pay £20 for posting some mail to their granddaughter in Australia, but the accounting system says that the postage costs £25. Yeah. And there's this discrepancy which the post office, I don't know, are they franchisees or, or whatever? Effectively franchisees, yeah. Hasn't actually made the £25, but the headquarters think they have. And when they can't account for it, they then treat the post office franchisee as having stolen the money. Yeah. And so right you. I think the other insidious part of the bug was that from the point of view of the person at operating the till at the post office, it didn't tell you that there was the discrepancy necessarily or it made it seem as if the discrepancy was fixed or something. Is that right, Manny? Yeah, I, I just I don't think you were able to unpack it. So once the bug had manifested, mm. there was no mm. real way for anybody to know that it was in fact a bug. So you couldn't tell mm. if you were sitting there, whereas it seems there was back-end knowledge that mm. it was, that wasn't available to the franchisee or the person who was actually dealing with the cash. And so... So how did this end up in the criminal justice system? Like... Yeah. Well, so, so you get a letter that says you, you know, have stolen 11,000 pounds... And you may pay it back if you can afford it or, you know, you're not that rich, so you can't afford to pay it back. Um, but either way, you were charged. You were charged. What, with fraud? With, with fraud. 
and police investigators turned up, and they're all obviously like here, they're all charged under the name of the Crown, but it was the post office that was managing these prosecutions in effect with police officers. And but wouldn't you just say, isn't there, isn't there, so there's obviously no record on the post offices themselves end to say, we followed the computer procedure, we charged this amount, here's the documents to say that we did so. Well, there's no, there's no hard copy, right? So it's right, all okay. computerized. It's all on the computer. Yeah. Right. The days of, and I, I think that's, that's. Uh, I mean, I don't see many, once upon a time, the registers would always have the electronic roll going, but it's been a long time since that's been everywhere. So, so this, so this, this, this computer software sends you the wrong figure. You type it in, you charge the customer accordingly, put it in the no, system, no. put it away. So you, you charge the customer $10. It goes yep. into the computer system. You put the ten dollars yep. in the till, but there's yep. a bug that means that it thinks you've charged twenty dollars. I'm making those numbers up, but that's sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And it sure. gets reported yep, yep, back yep. to headquarters that that day you made a thousand dollars, and there's only five hundred dollars in your till. Understand now? Yeah. Yes. So did people then plead guilty, or was there a mixture of outcomes? There was a mixture of about forty-two. Forty-two How men and women cases? were charged. 42, why wouldn't anyone go, hang on a minute, this can't be, this is a conspiracy? Well, so it, it ultimately, um, there's a, there, England has a criminal cases review commission, which is sort of this- Did I just jump forward ahead too far? No, no, no. So, the, the, so ultimately what happened was the criminal cases re, um, review commission, which is this great body they've got there, that can look into any case in the UK- um, and usually where they've lost appeals, that's where they look at. And they have the power to basically refer a matter to the court, um, which is how this mm. all came to light. But um, so, I mean, the interesting thing about... So they referred it to the Court of Appeal, didn't they? They did. They referred it to the Court of Appeal. And I'll come to the Court of Appeal's judgment in a moment. But um, in effect, the... I mean, these people had tried, many of them have tried in the course of the proceedings of their criminal matters to sort of obtain disclosure, to try and get computer records and so on. Um, there, there was a woman who, was, who left school, starts working at a post office, is accused of stealing £11,000. There was zero evidence that she'd stolen the money physically, like there's no video cameras, there's nothing to suggest she physically took the money. Um, but police investigators say, can you demonstrate how you did not steal the money? Um, hmm. She goes to jail and, you know, in the course of That's it... That's not she, her job. Hey? Yeah, she, That's not her job. Yeah. She's asked to for disclosure of the computer records and that disclosure hasn't occurred and it's been... It's been refused because it's too expensive. Um, it was too hard to do. It was too hard to look in to what happened. Uh, and computers can be trusted. And, and there is, I think this is true everywhere, there is this acceptance by judges and prosecutors and probably defence lawyers, too many of us, that computers don't get it wrong. Mm. And there's actually built-in provisions in the Australian evidence law um, that that sort of say give rise to some pretty pow powerful presumptions that if computers say things they must be true, 
And so it becomes very difficult to subpoena or otherwise get that evidence when you don't have a way to say, well, there has to be a, ro- there has to be a problem there. So... Mm. Uh, since it says here, Manny, since the errors, this is in The Guardian, I'm quoting, since the errors in the system were discovered, 57 people had convictions overturned. Some died before their names could be cleared. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It'd be interesting yeah. to examine the quality of the prosecution and defence work in some of these cases, wouldn't it? Because sort of one thing, obviously the post office systems were wrong and flawed, but in a criminal justice system where proof beyond reasonable doubt is the cornerstone... God, Absolutely. it kind of begs belief that this happened over such a long period to so many people mm. when there, in fact, was no certain proof, obviously. Well, what's really interesting is that there was a there was an advice given uh, to the effect, so they knew, the post office at some point knew that this was a problem, Right and that they should be have been disclosing these things and they didn't disclose it. And there was this advice given by a particular barrister that said, you know, if you haven't written it down, if it's not minuted, then you don't have to disclose it, which is just plainly wrong. So this is another breach of disclosure. Yeah. And they were scathing. The, 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 one of the court judges, there's several court judges in relation to this, one of them was scathing and, you know, suggesting that it may well be a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice and that, you know, it's wrong in law and principle and, you know, doesn't they didn't appreciate fully the duties of fairness and integrity placed on a prosecutor's shoulders. The court made a decision about whether or not the prosecutions were an abusive process and there was two there's two categories of abusive process well there's unlimited categories of abusive process but there's two um, standard categories one is where you can't give an accused a fair trial and the other is where it offends where it so offends a court sense of justice and propriety uh, in the particular circumstances of the case and that's a pretty rare finding for a court to make and it says in that second category is it doesn't really matter what the competing interests are. It doesn't really matter that somebody might be getting off something that they've done. It's just so wrong. The behaviour has been so wrong that, you know, that, that that's the end of it. Um, and that submission was accepted by the Court of Appeal. Um, and they said effectively the convictions were quote, an affront to the conscience of the court and the prosecution, bringing of the prosecutions was an affront to the conscience of the court. Um, there was also a related class action that resulted, I think, in about a $57 million settlement or payout. Um, but the harm that was caused to individuals, some of the stories are astonishing. There was a woman who was locked up she was eight weeks pregnant Um, she was locked up on her son's 10th birthday when the sentence was announced she collapsed in court and these are just Mm. all innocent people who you know were unlucky to be using the wrong computer system and you know i I suppose in one sense it gives and doing an important job of mail being distributed throughout 
the country. I mean, it's just extraordinary yeah. that that system could be compromised in that way and, and affect so many people. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit similar to the robo-debt scandal here, isn't it? Where the Commonwealth generated all the supposed debts under the social security system and it was subsequently found, I think it was subsequently found that the IT software was flawed, that there was no legal basis to be generating these debts and that hundreds of thousands of them weren't actually owed. And I think mm. in robo-debt there was evidence of um, at least one person committed suicide as a consequence and all these people suffered terribly when they had all these Commonwealth debts imposed on them. Yeah. that ought not have been imposed. Sort of taking the human element out of investigation, isn't it, and relying on computers and algorithms and you just have this potential for such widespread error. It's cheaper mm. and more efficient. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, ruins people's lives. But it's interesting. The robot analogy is interesting. One of the things that the court was quite scathing of the post office about in this case was that they had been using the threat of prosecution in order to force people to pay these notional debts that mm. they didn't really have, which, which of course, mm. a big no-no. Um, but, you know, they were doing so the, that. They were effectively private prosecutions, weren't they, Manny? Because the post office entity, what's that called in the UK? Post Office Limited brought the proceedings as a private prosecutor. Yes. Yeah. Sort of quite interesting in the context of alleged dishonesty offending where people were charged with theft, fraud and false accounting, where there does also have seem to be some spectre of perhaps the proceedings being brought for an illegitimate purpose or mm. particularly that in that mm. correspondence foreshadowing proceedings, there's that illegitimate purpose kind of barely stated, openly stated, that, well, look, we won't bring the proceedings if you pay us the money. I wonder whether they also, did they also get any kind of reparations, compensation orders as mm -hmm. a consequence of the convictions, Manny? There's something up here now on Guardians, but Manny, obviously you... Sorry, whether away. you mean to pay back the money. Well, some of them had, yeah. some of them paid the back out of fear... Mm. Um, I actually don't know whether or not there was any specific orders made in by way of reparation orders or the like. Mm. Um, there is, according to the Guardian, there is there's there 555 claimants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, 57.5 million pound settlement. No, no, yeah. sorry, no. I think yeah. no, no. That's the class action. Deal. Sorry, yeah, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, talking yeah. about. I'm talking the, about yeah. in consequence of a conviction, whether yeah. an offender also think, had a compensation order made against them. I'll go back on mute. I reckon I'll go back on mute, guys. Yeah, go back on mute. Yep, done. Here we go, and I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> we love didn't you, mean that. Come back, Jim. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. What did I miss? We still going? Um, yeah. So I just. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because part of me is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm saddened by this and I, I really do think that we have a problem now with technology and how courts approach it and the level of, in, the level of understanding of practitioners of technology is way, way, mm. way too low, way too low. Mm. And computer experts are, and I'm sure the people listening to this 
who have friends who are computer experts. I'm not talking about them, but generally speaking, computer experts are, in my experience, the worst experts you can come across. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're <laughs> often in my experience, um, they rely on their technical prowess and language in order to avoid being examined deeply and, and uh, in order to hide things, as, as all experts do, but computer experts are yeah. particularly adept at that. Yeah, and you guys are sole traders. You don't know what it's like working in an office. Have you ever had to do with IT? Yeah, no. <laughs> My God. No, does this also sound uh, does this sound a note of caution about private prosecutions as well? Because I've sort of noticed, I don't do a lot of that work, but I've sort of noticed a tendency that when you're up against a private prosecutor, whether it's the RMS or different agencies, they sometimes have quite different organisational cultures than sort of professional prosecutorial bodies. Quite yeah. extreme. They're always seeking cost orders against everyone. And a Part of the problem is, though, in my experience, I, I, and I do prosecute for, for various agencies, um, I actually... But that's not private prosecutions. No, well, really? so, for example... Well, but, private, but you know what I mean? Like, not that this these were necessarily private prosecutions, but they're kind of regulatory prosecutions done by an agency, not by a prosecution agency, is what I meant, I guess. I think in theory, Stephen, that's right. I think in practice what you find is that you end up with regulatory capture of the prosecution agency so that how many times is a director of public prosecutions going to say to, you know, whatever agency, the ACCC, look, this prosecution's stupid, don't run it, etc. The bureaucracies become intertwined and it becomes sort of irrelevant, um, unfortunately. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting, though. I mean, we've talked about problems with an entrenched culture of non-disclosure within some of the institutional prosecuting bodies on previous episodes. Yeah. And that seems to be the foundational issue that gave rise to the abusive process label being attached to this case, particularly on that Category 2 basis of it bringing the criminal justice system into disrepute, where the court particularly commented about how many of the appellants had pleaded guilty but then referred to the authorities that a conviction following a guilty plea may be quashed on grounds of abuse of process where the plea was founded upon the irregularity of non-disclosure and then went on to conclude, we have no doubt that all the guilty pleas of the appellants in the Horizon cases, Horizon was the um, software with the bug, were founded upon the post office's failures of investigation and disclosure and the whole conduct of the prosecutions was based upon the constant assertion that the Horizon data was reliable and that the money must have been stolen or at least assured for dishonestly concealed. The appellants were denied the material which could have been used to question that assertion and so on. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know whether there's we can really attribute to private prosecutors or to these, these agencies that prosecute, but that's not their bread-and-butter operation, some lower standard of behaviour given the woeful standards of behaviour of disclosure that exist in other 
established institutions yeah. of prosecuting and investigating. But are they more zealous? Do you think? Is there a tendency for them to be more more zealous sometimes? Mm. Yeah. Look. I think it might seem that way to those of us who are accustomed to doing sort of more ordinary crime, that they're more zealous. But I think that's actually because, you know, they're keen, they've got a keenness about their subject area and they perhaps don't have that misunder that that understanding, I said misunderstanding, it's probably the better description, that misunderstanding that criminal practitioners have about pushing things to their limits um they're more they're more likely to push points where criminal practitioners are more likely to roll their arm over but i think that rolling i think prosecutors roll their arm over in the main because they're less well funded than they should be and mm-hmm. not because whereas the regulatory agencies have a bit more money and they have you know this is the what right. this is the two cases i've got on my on my desk this month, whereas the prosecutor for the criminal matters got 50, you know. Mm. Mm. So, Manny, they did find the fair trial basis as well on the basis that they were satisfied that a fair trial wasn't possible in any of the cases in the circumstances that existed, which is interesting to kind of make that post-event finding yeah, well, I mean, I, I think on the again on the basis of the disclosure, right? They they weren't given, That's right. yeah. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, one of them, one of them, the <laughs> one of these people on four separate occasions had requested that the court order disclosure from the post office of the errors in the records. Three different judges dismissed that application. And at the, le- at the end of her trial, defence counsel submitted she couldn't have a fair trial without further disclosure. The trial judge disagreed and said she could have it. And only mm. and 10 years after that, the Criminal Cases Review Commission concluded she didn't receive a fair trial mm. because she wasn't given disclosure. So there's, there- Do you think that sort of reveals a bias just in favour of, as you said, the computer's right and a bias in favour of well, you know, you are getting a fair trial and I'm going to sort of assume that as the starting point. Yeah, I think I think there really is a bias that of data over individuals, of, of you know, the computer has said this. This person is... And you've got to remember, these are not necessarily sophisticated clients. These are people who really... Mm, if you're sitting as a judge, this is the run-of-the-mill sort of person who comes before you. This is a run-of-the-mill sort of fraud. Someone stole 10 grand from a post office. Happens every day. Um, so why would I doubt that? And nobody's shown me, as you know, the judge presiding, why there might even possibly be an error in here. So I'm going to leave that. That's the position that's taken. And it's that reversal, really, of the onus that underpins these provisions, the onus of proof, so that really you're you're left with defendants having to prove that the computer was mistaken rather than having a rigorous analysis underpinning what the computer says. And for my part, I see this as a problem that's coming out in all aspects of the sorts of litigation I do, criminal law and also in sort of the high-risk defender stuff, is that we are more and more willing 
to accept opinions offered by computers, offered by experts and so on, without really taking the step of validating each of every point underneath it. Because we're so far advanced in, in what we're doing that to validate everything underneath it is an arduous process that takes a lot of time and a lot of money and people just don't want to do it. But here we see the real effect of what happens when you don't do that properly. So, Stevie, do you know how this was uncovered in terms of how this injustice ultimately came to light? Yeah, it seems that that a campaign started being pushed by people who had sort of fallen foul of this Horizon uh, program. They started a campaign group, Justice for Subpostmasters Alliance, in 2009. Sort of concerns grew in the media, a number of members of parliament joined their cause and then ultimately an independent investigation firm was commissioned by the post office to conduct an inquiry and then it sort of came out of that process, I think. Um, Yeah. I mean, in in 2014 there was a debate or, well, there was a speech given in the adjournment debate at Westminster um, about it and there was pressure put on to appoint forensic accountants and so on. Uh, But as late as 2015, the Post Office told Parliament that it had received no evidence that the conviction of any applicant was unsafe. So, um, and by 2020, there was a, the the Lord Arbuthnot, I'm no doubt mispronouncing that, was on the record as saying as the Post Office lied to Parliament about it. Um, so it just seems like there was a groundswell of individuals and eventually it got to Parliament, eventually it got to the Criminal Cases Commission and to the court. And the post office was dragged, kicking mm. and screaming. It's interesting, Paul Marshall, who gave the speech that Manny referred to at the top of the topic, was pretty scathing about the involvement of lawyers for the post office and said some post office lawyers knew of information that would have provided a defence to the defendants. Other lawyers knew of information that would have enabled convicted defendants to launch appeals to the Court of Appeal long, long before March 2021, which is when they did land there. Um, And he goes on, Paul Marshall goes on, I hope that some of them may end up in prison for perverting the course of justice. At the outset of your careers, you'll think you'll never do this. Some of those lawyers would have imagined the same thing in their 20s. You may ask what it is that caused them to lose their way. It's pretty interesting, I think, to think about how people can end up being part of a bigger rolling force that causes these gross injustices to many people and and not speak up about it and not do anything about it on an individual level and just participate. Mm. Yeah. You know, in the age of the precariat. Well, I, I mean, in the age of the precariat where lawyers are, you know, hanging on like everybody else to their jobs, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of it's it's pretty hard to stand up for many people and... You know, I suppose the, the, 
message is that you're under the eye of eternity and even if you're not going to get convicted of the perversions that you engage in, it's on your conscience that, you know, those people go to jail who are innocent. Mm. I think it also is a good um, occasion to sort of remember that, you know, being ethical as a lawyer can sometimes feel like a really hard thing to do and stand up and, you know, confront the conflicting duties as against, for example, the duty to your client, the post office, and the duty that you have first and foremost to the court and then really confront yourself about it. But I think, you know, those lawyers that do stand up and and maybe take some some personal cost in terms of the way they might be viewed by colleagues or, or whatever, you know, ultimately are the ones that really uphold our system of justice when they when they do give effect to that mm. that first and foremost duty to the court. Yeah. And I mean ultimately twenty years after the fact, justice was done in a sense, there was damages put into place and obviously they don't fix everything. But too slow, Manny. I know. Too much damage done. I know, but it, it at least gives me some hope. Because in every system there's going to be corruption. Um, and he, I'm always careful when corruption is seen that we don't take that as a complete as evidence of complete systemic failure. Because to aim at complete eradication of corruption is to invite totalitarian control. Yeah, and to the extent that the system has been able to correct itself. Welcome back to the wigs, the final fun things for this episode, the only fun things for this episode. We're going to do fun things at the end. Got to uh, get that brain working again. Going to go... In my order, which is next to me, high five to you, Flick. Here we go, high five. No, not you, because you're reading something. High five down low, and Manny, high five down low. There we go. Fun things. Yeah, what's your fun thing in lockdown? What's your lockdown fun thing? Can I I just say, I don't use the word lockdown, I use the word internment. What's your (laughs) internment? Because because it's more accurate. Yeah, the yeah, of course. Yeah. What's your home house arrest fun thing? My, my internment fun thing. Look, I am very, very close to having lost 20 kilograms this year. Oh, man. Well and done, so sir. I'm going to have – and I'm going to put five of them back on in one meal. That's my <laughs> – that's yeah. my fun thing. That's good. Yeah. Three steps uh, forward, one step back. That, I like that's it. That's right. That's right. You still took three. That's good. Congratulations. That's an excellent fun thing. Uh, that was your goal for a while there, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, wasn't it? Yeah, I've lost and a you, bit. You, look at you. 11 Smashing kilos it. since last December. There you go, sir. Fantastic. Nice. So fun things. A friend of mine uh, had his wedding yesterday, so I was up in Sydney for that. Oh, no, I wasn't. That got cancelled because of COVID. <laughs> and then I flew this morning to Darwin for a conference and for a week's holiday. Oh, no, I didn't. That got cancelled. Oh, and man. I'm looking forward to the end of my term in local government on September 4, except no, I'm not. No, no, you won't. Extended to December 4 because of COVID. So, yeah, so much fun, isn't it? I could just I could keep going. So you don't want to be the mayor. <laughs> you have to be the mayor. 
I've announced that I'm not recontesting, yes. I'm just kidding. Uh, a lot of people of Dubbo are lucky to have you. And, uh, yeah, fair enough. That's uh, So what, what did you end up on? No fun thing? No, counter fun <laughs> thing. You're not under some sort of lock-in. You're not interned, though, are you? You're free to roam. No, yeah. we've got some regulations. I did do one fun thing. I went to I saw. a farewell for the chief judge of the drug court, Roger Dive, organised by the Glen. It was an online thing, like a Teams meeting. And it was really beautiful and fun and cool. And they did a really good job of noting the significance of his career and haven't got a chance to speak. And it's really cool. Jeez, he was, I was, I'd like, I don't know that I'd finished law school and I remember him being on the bench in the drug court. Yeah, he's been around. Yeah. 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 Oh, good. He's got a bit of Ray Sunshine there. Felicity Graham, uh, what's your fun thing if you have one? Is it good? You got to have one. No, I don't care. There has to be one. Uh, I might go for a bushwalk this weekend. Permitted okay. bushwalk or walk by the seaside. That's it's fun. It's beautiful. Lennox there's lots, Head. There's lots of whales migrating. It's amazing. Aren't they in lockdown too? Oh, it doesn't apply to them. They're yeah. in the bush though? What are they doing in the bush? No, they're in the ocean. <laughs> she lives on the coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been yeah, there. I think, I think we've established that Manny has visited Felicity's yes. precinct. Last episode or the episode before. Mm. I can't remember. Oh, time flies. Um, what about you, Jim? Yeah. What's your fun thing? Yeah. Cu- currently failing law school, guys. Very fun. Really happy about this lockdown. It's going really great. Wait, failing so, one uh, exam is not failing law school. It wasn't an exam. I it was an assignment. Please make degrees. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I've got four weeks to get my acting together. We've got exams. I've got four weeks to uh, call back some marks that I lost on an assignment. But to the fun thing so is... So you've got to do some corporations law next episode. Is that right, Jim? You touched a little bit on it today, which kind of helps. Um, please, if we have to, we have to. Actually, I might be an expert. So, yeah, let's, let's go for it. Let's dig into the vault, get some cases up. Happy to. I test me on it. Let's, present... let's turn the whole episode into a test on, for me. Yeah. Well, I think you should present the next episode on corporations law. <laughs> and we'll sit as I'll a bench of three. Thing or two. <laughs> Mins on corporations. Yeah. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm happy to do it. Uh, look, uh, I hope we haven't left the audience on a Debbie Downer, but, uh, you know, uh, we're still here. We're still churning out the wigs. Still happy? Uh, on behalf of the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you're doing well. Uh, we will get out of this. I can feel it in my bones. And then we will be in the studio soon. So until that time happens, we'll see you on another episode of The Wigs. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.